Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Fabiani Duarte, Chair of the ABA Law Student Division, and I'm attending Mercer University School of Law in Georgia. And I'm Madison Burke, the Governor of the Division's 12th Circuit, and I attend the University of Washington School of Law in Seattle. We're the hosts for today's show, which is being presented by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. And in this monthly podcast, we interview guests and cover topics of interest for law students and recent grads. From finals to graduation and the bar exam to finding a job, we hope this show is a trusted resource for you and our listeners. Today's topic is student debt. In a previous episode, we talked about how one of the most common ways to get student loan forgiveness is to qualify for public service loan forgiveness, and how this program encourages law students and graduate students alike to enter full-time public service jobs after graduation. Today, we're going to be focusing on smart ways to tackle the important and sometimes burdensome issue of student debt that many of us are dealing with or that we know we need to prepare to deal with after law school. Our first guest today is David Klein. In 2011, David and two fellow UPenn Wharton MBA students set out to tackle one of these frustrating areas of consumer finance that many of us have firsthand experience with, the student lending industry. They co-founded Common Bond, a self-described values-driven financial services startup that refinances student loans. David now serves as Common Bond's CEO at its headquarters in New York. Prior to Common Bond, David worked in consumer finance at American Express, as well as a consultant at McKinsey, advising clients in the financial services industry. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. Great, David. We're, we're excited that you're here and we're honored uh, for, for your time to, to join us and the law students uh, we broadcast to. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Common Bond describes themselves as a values-driven financial services startup. Could you uh, just start out by explaining what does this mean? Sure. So when we talk about being a values-driven financial services company, um, we're really talking about valuing what um, our consumers value. Um, so as you mentioned up top, the reason we exist as a company is because when I went back to uh, school, I went to graduate school, uh, got my MBA, um, you know, the, I needed to pay my way 100% with student loans. And in paying my way 100% with student loans, um, I noticed three things that were wrong with the market. One, rates were unnecessarily high. Two, the process was quite opaque. And three, the service was pretty poor. Um, and so, you know, teamed up with my co-founders, we decided to build a company um, that valued people's pocketbook more uh, with savings, that valued people's time more with the simplicity of process, and valued people's worth more in treating them like human beings over the phone and providing service to them. And so that's exactly what we built. And so, uh, on average, uh, borrowers on our platform save about $15,000 over the life of the loan, which puts more money directly back into their pocket. From a simplicity perspective, um, we've built one of the simplest uh, processes in the industry. 
uh, in order to uh, apply and get approved for a loan in a short amount of time. And then third, from a service perspective, it's something, of course, we've invested heavily in from the very beginning as well. Um, and this is driven a lot by the people that we put on the phones and answer email and live chat um, with, uh, with our applicants and with, with our borrowers. Um, these are folks who um, score very high on everything from intellectual capacity to empathy to extreme competence, just so that you know, when we say we're going to call you back if we ever have to, we do. And we do it exactly when we say we will in a short period of time. And so I think those are three pretty big values. And then the fourth value, um, which, is, which is quite unique, um, is the value of driving social good. Uh, and so when we started the company, we started the company with a one-for-one -one social promise. Um, that is to say, for every degree fully funded on our platform, we fund the education of a student in need for a full year. And we've partnered with House of the Promise, which is an education nonprofit based here in New York, in order to deliver on that. In fact, we've already funded thousands of, of students um, in schools uh, across the globe through our social mission. And this is something that, um, you know, we're we're very proud of here at, at Common Bond. We've seen the, the social impact that it has, and we're able to do it in a way that, you know, doesn't um, encroach upon any of the other values that we look to deliver for our customers every single day around, you know, more money back into their pocket, around a simple process that speeds up uh, the experience and around, you know, human service as, as opposed to feeling as though we're, we're a number in a, in a big black hole. All right. Well, thanks, David. I appreciate uh, you explaining um, and unpacking uh, that definition of, of, of your company and, and what drives you guys. Um, you know, something that uh, drives a lot of uh, students when they choose uh, law schools or think about transferring is uh, about uh, the value in going to a, a lower-ranked school for free or at lower cost versus going to a high-sticker-priced but highly-ranked school uh, what would you recommend when people are doing those calculations? Uh, uh, do, 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 you, do you think it's better to generally side toward a lower uh, to free tuition, though it's something uh, that's lower ranked, or, or go in you know, uh, full throttle, full speed ahead, and it'll, it'll work out in the end somehow? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think you know, data and information is really important. And so what you want to do in evaluating um, what law school to go to. There are going to be a whole host of attributes that you consider, um, many of which you, you just mentioned, right? So um, brand, quality of education. But there's also this component of, you know, where do graduates of this institution typically end up? And the more granular data you have on that, the better. And the, the more salary information you have at that granularity, the better. And the reason I say that is because to the extent you want or need to take out loans to go to grad school, just like I did, um, you're going to want to understand before going into school what your debt liability is going to be afterwards. And you're going to want to understand that debt liability um, as it relates to how much income you have coming in every single month. And what you're trying to avoid is a, is a world in which you are overly indebted, right? And so in order to, to do that, um, it's actually quite straightforward to do, but... Um, you've got to be able to do the work up front. And so what I always advise is of the schools you're interested in, uh, reach out to the admissions office directly and or the financial aid office directly. Collect that data. Um, what do, you know, not just average salaries look like, but the 25th percentile salary and the 75th percentile 
percentile salary? And is there any other breakup that they have on the data to show how salary is different across um, different places where you, as the student, might want to end up post-college? Now, what that allows you to do is get one side of the two-sided equation. That is to say, when I graduate, how much income am I going to have on a monthly basis? The second thing you would do then is you would say, okay, how am I going to pay for this sucker? Um, to the extent you take out loans, you're going to look at your options. You're going to figure out what the right term of the loan is, that is to say length of time that you want to hold the debt for, as well as the interest rate associated with that term. That is to say how much you're going to pay on top of the principal over that term uh, in order to benefit from the loan. And you can calculate uh, what that monthly debt service or monthly payment is going to be. And when you combine that monthly uh, payment on the student loan with what you expect to make uh, on the income side coming in on a monthly basis, you'll be able to tell how indebted you will be upon graduation. Um, and generally speaking, if, if that ratio, um, if that debt to income ratio in industry term um, is, you know, something akin to 20%, you're generally good. If it's 30%, you're still good, but you want to, you want to, you want to kind of look out. And if it's 40%, you know, you're, you're still generally good by, by industry standards, but you still want to pay close, close attention. And this is assuming that you don't have any undergraduate debt still uh, hanging over you by the time you decide to go into graduate school? Or um, would you incorporate that undergraduate debt into these calculations as well? Yeah, great question. It would be holistic. Um, so you would include any and all debt obligations that you have upon graduation, including undergrad debt. All right. So um, speaking of incorporating different things into this estimation process, uh, a lot of students, they do very well in undergrad and they're offered merit scholarships. But a lot of these merit scholarships can have the requirement that your first year law school grades have to keep you in a certain percentile of your class rank in order for you to continue to get that scholarship um, your second and third year. Um, how do you account for those types of scholarships when you're trying to estimate what your cost will be? Sure. I guess uh, it'll start with how confident you are in your ability to hit a certain grade point average. Um, what I would do if I was in that scenario, I would just run actually a scenario analysis. I would say, you know, in scenario A, um, I hit the grades I want to in order to keep the scholarship. In scenario B, I don't. And in each of those scenarios, uh, the amount of money you'll have to go seek elsewhere outside of the scholarship will change. Um, and to the extent that, you know, you don't hit the grades and you need to find that, uh, that money elsewhere, let's assume that it's going to be a student loan, right? Um, and so you would actually run two scenarios to say, okay, in scenario one, when I do really well on grades, here's what my monthly student loan payment is, is going to be relative to my income. And then in, in scenario, you know, in the second scenario, uh, if I don't hit, my grades, here's what my uh, monthly payments are going to be relative to my income. Okay. It's a, it's, it's a great question. And obviously, um, you know, as a student, the more quote unquote free money you're able to uh, uncover and or earn um, is certainly the, the right way to go. So, so David, we've, we've talked about just now in the last couple of questions, different strategies as as uh, pers prospective law students um, should probably take as they prepare to dive into law school. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see uh, law students or, or 
prospective law students uh, make when when finally making those loan decisions um, and and taking on the student debt once they've done all the their homework and um, followed some of the the previous steps we've already talked about. Yeah, so I say two things. One, absolutely, is um, there is not as much upfront work as we're talking about right now um, than I think there can or should be. And so I would I would highly encourage. Um, law students, frankly, any student at the graduate, undergraduate level to take this approach to reach out to the universities they're interested in, understand what incomes look like in general and on average upon graduating, figure out what that looks like on a monthly basis, and then comparing that with what your monthly debt cost is going to be on a monthly basis. That's that's kind of big point number one. Um, Big point number two is really just understanding uh, the different dynamics of a student loan. So many of us have had to take out student loans and will continue to have to take out student loans to the extent we, um, you know, seek further education. And it's important to know the difference between a 5, a 10, a 15, and a 20-year loan. It's important to know the difference between a variable and a fixed-rate loan. So on a fixed-rate loan, uh, whatever rate you lock in, that will be your rate for the life of the loan. Um, On a variable-rate loan, if all else being equal, you generally get a lower rate. Um, But with that lower rate, it means you take on market interest rate risk. That is to say that as interest rates rise, as interest rates rise, so too does your variable rate. And so it's important for people to understand that dynamic so that when they're choosing between a fixed and a variable, they're also using as a function of that decision what they think might uh, happen in the broader market. Um, A lot of times, you know, I I will say that being said, the fixed rate product is our most popular product. And I think they're relative to variable. And I think the reason that's that's the case is because there are a lot of people who don't want to predict market interest rate movements. Um, There are a lot of people in finance who get paid very well to try and predict it and even they get wrong. Um, So, um, you know, many people generally just will uh, go into into a fixed rate product. Um, the, the second is the, the term or tenor of the product, the 5, the 10, the 15, the 20. Generally, what you see here is the lower the term of the loan, the lower your interest rate. And that seems great. And for some people, it is great. But what it also means is that even though you have a lower interest rate, because the term of that loan is shorter, you basically have to pay it back sooner. And because you have to pay it back sooner, your monthly payment is actually going to be greater than a five-year loan than it will be in a 10, a 15, or a 20-year loan, where you have more time to divide up all the payments, even in a world with a 10, 15, 20-year loan where the interest rate is a bit higher. And so people really should think about what's more important to me. Um, is it more important to me to save more cash flow every single month, in which case you should get a longer-term loan? Or is it more helpful to me to just save the total amount of interest paid over the life of the loan, whatever the life of the loan, uh, in which case you want to go for a shorter-term loan? One question I have actually from listening to your response is, um, you know, it seems that we're assuming maybe that you're going to know before you start law school what area of law, like there's great variance depending on the type of practice you want to go into and what your salary will be. And so there are a lot of big assumptions that have to be made. Like you could go in thinking, I want to do big law, so I'm going to have a big salary and then decide, actually, I'm going to be a public defender and I'm going to be starving and living off ramen noodles. And, Uh and that is completely going to change. Um, what you're going to be able to handle, but you have to make the decision of what debt to take well before you have to make the decision of what job you yep. want. Yep. I, I get it. One of my, one of my best friends is a public defender down in Louisiana. And I think he literally lives off of ramen noodles. So I, 
<laughs> I, I definitely get that. Um, and, and you're right, you know, based on conversations that I, I've had with folks and what we see, not everybody knows um, whether they're going to go into public interest or whether they're going to go into corporate or something in between. And so I would say two things. One, I go back to the scenario analysis um, comment, and that is to say, run the two scenarios. Run a scenario in which you go work um, kind of in the public sphere, um, and then run a scenario in which you work in the corporate sphere. And look at the difference between, between those two things as it relates to um, debt and income on a monthly basis as you, as you move forward. Um, that's, that's kind of big point number one. Um, big point number two is that <clears throat> to the extent you go into public service, there are some phenomenal federal government programs um, that, you know, if you take on federal government debt, um, there are um, certain loan forgiveness plans um, that if you are in the public sector long enough, that you can get your loan forgiven. Now, you have to make a real commitment. Um, you've got to be in the public sector for quite a while, um, I think at least 10 years, the uh, most recent check. Um, and so what I, might, what I might offer up there is if you know you want to go into public service, you know, that's, that's probably when taking advantage of some of these unique federal protections makes a lot of sense. If you, if you don't know, it's a, it's a real, it's a real decision. And th that decision is simply just going to come down to, um, two, uh, two options, right? The one option is, Hey, I'm going to pay, um, higher rates on my federal government debt, but I'm going to pay that higher rate because I see that as a price, um, to pay for the option, um, to go into public service if, if I want. Um, stay there for 10 years and get my, my, loan, uh, my loan forgiven. Or I might say, you know what? Even if I go into public service, uh, boy, I, I don't know, 10 years is a really long commitment. And uh, I already know that there are other loan options out there where I can save you know, over the life of my loan, on average, $15,000. And by the way, for lawyers, that number is a bit higher, what we've seen on our platform. Um, and so you'll make you'll make that decision. And then of course, if you know that you're, you're closer to um, the corporate side of, of that equation, um, then the decision tends to be even clearer. Okay. That, that is, that's really great. Yeah. And uh, you know, I know we kind of jumped to that subject uh, about really considering if public service is something that you, you feel, you know, called to early on. Um, and you, you kind of explained, you know, some of the calculations that people should take into account uh, if that's, if, if for example, they want to pursue the public service loan forgiveness option, which is that 10 year program, is there, is there, uh, any more guidance that you would give to people who are thinking that they should go for the PSLF program or, or maybe a better question would be who should get the public service loan forgiveness program? Who, who should really bank on that? Yeah, I think, you know, those who are really committed to going down the public service track, it's, it's a phenomenal program. It, it really is. Um, and, and, you know, it, while you're on that track, you can also leverage other uh, federal protections such as income-based repayment. That is to say that, you know, you will not pay more than X percent of your salary at any given point in time uh, to pay back your federal student loan, right? So, so there are programs out there that are very good. And I think um, particularly if you are committed to the, the public service path, could you expand upon on that a little bit more? Just unpack income-based repayment a little for our listeners beyond what you just did. Sure, income-based repayment is an option that says you know if you make, let's say you take in 
uh, $3,000 a month, right? You're taking in $3,000 a month uh, in income. The federal government says, if you have a federal government loan, we will not expect you to uh, generate any more than 10% of your income to uh, the federal government to pay off your loan, right? And that will exist for a particular period of time um, until you can pay it off. And I think if that lasts for about 20 to 25 years, it could ultimately get forgiven. Now, the issue comes in, and this is the rub, um, is that uh, whether it's the public loan forgiveness program or the IBR, is that if you do not take public loan forgiveness to 10 years, or if you do not take IBR to 20 to 25 years, and you decide to go a different direction, you're still on the hook to pay that back. And in the case of IBR, in, in many cases, not only are you on the hook to pay that back, but you actually not have to pay more money because um, the money you weren't uh, paying back was actually accruing interest. Um, and so there's, there's a real, and that doesn't get talked about much. Um, you know, I offer that up just because, as I mentioned up top, we're, we're all about data. We're all about information. We think that when we give data and information to, uh, to our customers, to our applicants, and, and the, wider, the wider range, better decisions are, are made. Um, and so uh, that's, that's what I mentioned. Oh, and, and by the way, um, even if you take the, the, the loan forgiveness program, the full 10 years, um, the, the tax is not forgiven on the balance. In other words, you have to pay tax on that as if it was a, as a benefit, if you take it all the way to 25 years. There are a number of different angles to this. So these programs, when you fit the bill, are, are, are fantastic, frankly. Um, and if you don't fit the bill or if there's some disclarity around it, it's just important to know, um, it's just important to know all aspects. Yes. So um, a common question that, that law students find themselves asking is if you make a little extra money, I know this is especially the case uh, if you get a good paying internship for one of your summers, what should you do with that money? Should you be putting it toward your student loan debt, savings, retirement planning, uh, buying a car or a house? Uh, how do you prioritize what to do if you if you come into some sort of windfall? Yeah, it's a great question. So if you come into some extra money, what do you do with that? Do you pay off your student loans or do you do something else? Um, as, as you could probably imagine, that is a very personal and context-specific question. That being said, I can offer up a few points, um, perhaps to create a frame of how to how to think through what the what the right thing to, to do is in that situation. Um, you know, the, the conventional wisdom, and by the way, I don't think the conventional wisdom is too far off here, is that um, if you can uh, make more on your money, if you can make a higher return on your money in the stock market or some other investment vehicle, um, then you are paying an interest rate on your student loan, then you want to do that all day long. Now, when I say that, it kind of seems obvious, right? You say, okay, I'm basically purchasing capital through my loan and call it 5%. And I'm gaining more capital through my investment at 7%. And so, you know, you're making that net 2% for, um, you're making that net net 2%, just in, if, if I'm oversimplifying it, right? Um, and so that, I think, is an interesting and sometimes effective frame of reference to use when determining whether you should pay off your loans or whether you should invest more. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. That 7% in the investment market could be anything. Um, it could be, um, and by the way, we should start to move off of rates of return and more to the utility that the individual receives, because that's ultimately what it's about, and, that, and that's what makes this decision so personal. So, for example, as an individual, 
who's 32 years old, who has um, a spouse and, you know, uh, maybe one kid and another on the way, it might be really important to you to purchase a house. Um, and you might find great utility in that house. Um, and so putting a money towards a down payment for that mortgage might make a lot of sense to you. However, um, in a similar situation, somebody else who gets utility not by moving into a house or even purchasing a house, but rather, you know, utility putting money into a 401k because they get peace of mind to know that their nest egg is growing larger. Um, right? How do you put a value on that? That value is essentially an individual, is a value that individuals place unique to them. And it generally has to do with how much utility you get out of it. And so if we start from this notion of this really simple use case of if I'm paying 5% of my loans and I think I get 7% in the investment market, and then you replace 7% in the investment market for any number of things that you can, should, want, or think about doing with your capital, it becomes a question of where do you as an individual get the, the greatest utility? Okay. So for those of us who don't have a finance background, um, this can be pretty daunting. Uh, I can't say that I even tracked everything that you just said, but I'm, so I'm wondering if there's a way you could maybe break it down a little bit more. Like where do you turn to try to, to find out this information or is this, is this a place where, um, your financial aid office at school is helpful or you need a financial advisor or is this something even talking to um, Common Bond would be helpful? So here's, here's the good news. So, um, <laughs> well, I'll give, you, I'll give you the bad news first and I'll give you the good news. The, the bad news is you're right. It's more complex than we want it to be and maybe it should be just because um, the, the number of options that folks have when they fall into money in terms of what to do with it, whether it's to pay off debt to remove a cost from their monthly basis or whether it's to invest in order to accumulate wealth. Um, there are a number of different options. Um, and, I, and I was still keeping it kind of high level and relatively simple in my first half <laughs> at, at the answer, right? So that's the bad news. The good news is, um, you know, you really, can't, you really can't lose, right? You really can't lose. So if you decided... Um, to pay off your student debt, hey, that's great. Uh, you just remove debt from your personal balance sheet. If you decide to invest in the market and accumulate wealth, um, and you know, to the extent you can match or beat the interest rate you're paying on your student loan with a return in the investment market, that's fantastic. You just um, accumulated more wealth with a student loan than you otherwise would have by paying off that student loan, right? And so each of these scenarios um, generally uh, have positive impacts just to varying degrees on the person who finds themselves um, who falls into a little bit more money. So that's, that's the good news. And, you know, for folks who actually want to dig a bit deeper here, um, there are a number of different resources. Um, yes, absolutely. You can reach out to Offset at Common Bond. Um, we love talking to folks about personal finance, not just student loans related, but across, across the board. Um, that's number one. Number two, there are financial advisors um, out there. Uh, LearnVest, it, we're a big fan of. Um, you know, they, they make it relatively simple and accessible for particularly a lot of millennials to access financial service in a cost-effective way. Um, with respect to looking to put a little money into the market, um, you know, we're big fans of, of Betterment, uh, which is an organization that really simplifies the investing experience in, in the market. And so to, to check out those folks as, as well, 
would 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 be a few places that that I'd start. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Thanks for that. Thank yeah. you. So <laughs> I actually I have a lot. I, mm-hmm. Hopefully, Fabiani doesn't get too upset. I have a question that's off script, um, but Go came ahead, to yeah. mind. Okay, came to mind as uh, as you're speaking, and that is how do you calculate your cost of living? So I know a lot of my um, friends, uh, fellow law students, they can't work or don't have the time to be able to work enough to support their rent and living expenses. And so this is something usually the college or you can go, I guess, to private lenders and get loans that essentially cover your rent and living expenses so that you can focus on your schooling. Obviously, this like exponentially increases the total debt load that you're going to have. So when you are a student or you're making the determination right. where you want to go to school, um, how do you suggest that that we approach this idea of, of incorporating our cost of living and with regard to what kind of debt burden we're going to incur? Sure. And I heard two questions there. One was um, how to pay for the cost of living expenses. And two is how to account for it. So in terms of how to pay for it, the, the good news is on, you know, at Common Bond, as an example, um, we will cover not just tuition, but also living expenses um, and as, a, as, a, as a general rule. Um, and of course, with respect to law school, upon graduating, um, we cover uh, whatever debt uh, that a student might have up to a maximum of $500,000, right? And so that's, that's kind of point, point number one. Um, to the extent you need extra debt to pay for uh, your living expenses, so you can focus on studies. That's what I did as an example. Um, I do think there's a lot of value in doing that. You just need to make sure that you're doing it intelligently, which goes to the second question, which is how do you account for it? So in terms of how you account for the student debt, it goes back to one of the things we were talking about up top, um, and that is, um, you know, understand where you think you're going to be upon graduation. Um, get a sense for how much you're going to be taking in every month. And then when you um, take on a loan, assume a particular interest rate. Um, and, you know, the size of that loan will, will vary. And you can run a scenario in which the size of your loan is related only to tuition and the size of your loan is, is related to both tuition and cost of living. Um, you run it through a student loan calculator, um, and you can put in these attributes, and you can see what your monthly payment is going to be. Um, and you can compare that to what your monthly income is going to be. Now, at that point, here's where it gets interesting. If you feel as though upon graduation, even with the income you're going to have, you're going to be over-indebted, you might have some, some choices to make. Um, you, know, you might have to look or go to a school that charges less. Um, you might have to think about going into a profession that pays more. Um, those are two of the things that you might have to do that just tweak the two-sided equation here of how much you're going to have to pay every month versus how much you're, you're taking in uh, every month. Okay. Thanks, Thank David. You. Uh, so, so David, I know that in preparation mm-hmm. for interview, um, your offices and our team uh, were able to um, talk about a case study um, using – uh, the University of Washington, which is near and dear to uh, Madison's heart, Go <laughs> uh, since Madison goes to school there. Um, and so we, we were able to um, work with you to run a few numbers. And so we just wanted to um, walk through this case study with you uh, covering the cost of attendance and uh, interest rates, uh, et cetera. Sure. So if you go to the University of Washington, 
the cost of attendance is about $63,000 annually, um, which is about $189,000 over three years. And that's for out-of-state students, right? Yes, that's for out-of-state that's for out-of-state students, and that includes living expenses. Okay, cool. Yeah, the average salary post-grad in the public sector from the University of Washington Law School is fifty-five thousand, and the average salary post-grad in the private sector is just a touch over a hundred thousand um, dollars. If you uh, paid one hundred percent with student loans and you decided to take out uh, federal government interest rates or federal government loans. Um, what you would do is you would take out the first $20,500 every year at a current interest rate of 5.84%, uh, which comes with it a, a 1% origination fee, slightly over 1%. Um, for the money above 20500 that you borrow, you would borrow at a higher fixed rate, and that is 6.84% fixed. And these loans are generally for 10 years. And by the way, that 6.84% fixed rate comes with uh, an over 4% origination fee. So the Ellen cost alone gets quite pricey. Um, loans are deferred while in school and interest accrues um, on, those, on those loans. Your first payment would not be due until the end of your grace period, which is generally six months after graduation. So what does all that mean once you graduate? Well, what that means is that you borrowed a total of 109 $189,000. The balance when your grace period ends because that interest accrued on your loan and that loan did something called um, capitalize, which means you now have a new balance, a new, a new uh, balance that includes the original principal plus accrued interest, which is the ultimate principal that you now have to pay off from time zero. It turned into a little north of $223,000. Right? So Ooh. you're holding debt that's $223,000 if you wanted to pay your way 100% with student loans at the University of Washington Law School. So not a, um, not a small sum. Uh, your monthly payment, just to give you a sense of what that means in terms of monthly cash flow, um, your monthly cash flow uh, on a 10-year 10, 10 term is going to be about $2,500 a month. And as you pay $2,500 a month, that includes both your principal payment to pay down that $223,000 plus additional interest because you got to pay that interest rate um, in addition to the, to the principal. And what that means is that when you're done paying your loan in 10 years, you will have spent $305,000. Wow. That's one of the, the big things that, you know, we, we face now, uh, a CNN.com uh, money uh, article uh, was able to find that uh, half of lawyers are now uh, getting a starting salary of less than sixty-two thousand um, dollars, and I and I know that for the Washington numbers, that it was um, we were able to f uh, average around sixty k. Um, uh, in, in some cases, uh, as a starting salary for um, people who aren't going into uh, big or private law firms. So, so what does that what does that feel like? Um, uh, you know, how, what what do those calculations look like um, in in living color for for that student? Yeah. So the the calculations for that student, you know, if they're making sixty thousand dollars a year, um, they're making about five thousand dollars a month before taxes, right? right? Um, and let's assume that you're going to be in a 25% tax bracket, so you're going to pay, uh, you know, $1,250 for, for taxes. And let's, you now have to assume um, that you have rental expenses, right? Um, and so how much are your rental expenses going to be? And then you're going to run through these calculations about 
you know, uh, what do you want to pay on grocery every every month? And then when you run through the calculations, you're going to have five thousand at the top of the funnel, and then you're a little less down away with certain expenses, taxes, and otherwise. And you're going to say, okay, how much free cash flow do I have at the end of this month? Yeah, cash flow. You mean that's that's what you're bringing home every month. That's just just to define some of those terms. Uh, that's what you mean by cash flow. Yeah. Okay. After after all expenses, including taxes, groceries, student loan payments, etc. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So we know that uh, since since they're bringing home five thousand dollars a month, half of it is going to go towards graduate loans, about $2,500 per the calculations that we were able to, to work through. Um, so, so what happens with, with the rest of the money? How, uh, I mean, so some of, some of it has to go. Yep. So let's, let's use that example. So this, this person, um, you know, who's making $5,000 a month total. Um, let's say they're in the 25th uh, percent tax bracket or the, the net effective tax is 25%. Um, it actually probably shouldn't be that high and isn't that high in reality, but let's use some conservative assumptions at that particular salary level. You're going to pay, you know, $1,250 to Uncle Sam. On your student loan, you're going to pay $2,500, right? Which by my calculations here leaves you with $1,250 left to pay for all other expenses, uh, rent and food. So as you can see, um, it gets, good luck. yeah, it, good, good luck, right? So what you want to do is you want to do a couple things. One you want to lower that $2,500 a month student loan payment. And there are options for you to do that, um, to, to refinance. Another thing you can do, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're currently a student or thinking about going to law school, um, you, can, you can do a lot of these calculations up front and, and, and come to this realization at this point in time as opposed to at the end of the line. And, and the good thing about that is if you come to this realization or determination at this point in the line, you, you still have options, Right. You can think about going to another law school that charges less. You can think about uh, perhaps um, applying for that many more scholarships to, to capture free money so that um, you're not as indebted. Um, you can think about um, changing career tracks um, if you're still on the fence of which path to go down. So if you're one of the grads who makes less than $100,000 per year, this is where you could potentially be looking into things like we discussed earlier, the income-based repayment. Right. So you, exactly. So you could look at the income-based repayment. Um, that is to say, if you make a, a below a certain level, then you qualify for income-based repayment where you don't have to pay any more than about 10% of your monthly salary to, to student debt. Um, and again, as we talked about before, um, it's a situational dependent program. And for those uh, who leverage it? It's a, it's a it's a great program to to leverage. The other the other way you know to think about relief. So you have the federal government loan protections, um, and then you know you can always refinance federal government student debt. So for example, um, in what I walked you through in this case study, if somebody refinanced with ten um, year fixed rate loan at four point seven five percent, I mentioned before um, what that meant on a total lifetime value perspective or savings perspective, which is above $20,000. But on a monthly cash flow brass tax perspective, um, you're looking at an additional $200 a 
in your pocket. It's a bit north of, of $200. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for this great conversation today. I learned a lot and I hope our listeners also learned a lot and have a lot to, to think about with their own approach to their financing their education. So thank you, David, for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And, and David, um, besides being able to reach out to uh, Common Bond um, and you on Twitter at David X Klein, and I think Common Bond is at Common Bond, um, what, what's the best way to get in contact with you for our listeners? Sure. So um, how broadly does this go? And I'll tell you uh, whether I can give you a personal email address or whether we should stick with Twitter. <laughs> we give all cell numbers to Donald Trump. So. Okay, yeah, exactly. exactly. So here's, here's, what, here's what I'll say. Um, I respond to everything on Twitter. Um, and so I think David X. Klein, at David X. Klein, is, is a great way to, to get a hold of me. Um, and we do, as a company, respond to every single tweet we get at Common Bond as well. So if you... Um, at Common Bond us on Twitter or at David X Find Me on Twitter, um, we'll be able to you know turn around communication in, in, in short order. Awesome. Thanks. Well, we hope you've enjoyed another episode of the ABA Law Student Podcast. We'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our show on iTunes. And once you've done that, take a moment to rate and review it as well. You can also tweet us at ABALSD and use the hashtag Law Student Podcast to tell us what's on your mind. All right. I'm Fabiani Duarte at Fabiani Duarte on Twitter. And I'm Madison Burke at Madison Burke. And we're signing off. Thanks so much, everybody. And thanks for listening. Work hard, play smart, and be careful with those student loans. <laughs> See you next time. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.